Happy Birthday, America. Adashi Nikoiki on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. This is episode number seven and more importantly, birthday number 238 for the United States of America and happy birthday to it. We are so thankful to be here in this country to do what we do for a living. And we thank all of the men and women who have uh, sacrificed themselves to protect this country and the armed forces past and present and future as well. Uh, we can't thank all of you enough uh, for your service. Uh, we have a very, very special show for you as we celebrate America, as well as the Americas. Uh, the 2014 FIFA World Cup continuing today with the quarterfinals. And one of our guests is Patricia Leon Guerrero. She is the Managing Director for Latino Engagement and Partnership for Teach for America. She is of Colombian descent, and Colombia has been one of the best teams, if not the best team, at the 2014 FIFA World Cup. Colombia plays Brazil today, the host country, in the 2014 FIFA World Cup quarterfinal round. So we talk with Patricia, and we talk with her about the Colombian pride that has swelled uh, in her family and in her residence of Washington, D.C., and also talk about the importance of education in the Latino community. She is absolutely hands-on with the spreading of the importance of education in the Latin American community here in the States. Uh, But our first guest, a very special guest indeed, he is a four-time Super Bowl champion, and he is also a recipient of the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star. He is Rocky Blyer, former member of the Pittsburgh Steelers and, of course, uh, served in the Vietnam War. And he took the time out to talk with us about his time in the armed forces in the United States Army in the Vietnam War and his post-war career, which included four Super Bowl championships with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he also talked about his head coach, Chuck Knoll, who passed away last month at the age of 82. So our conversation with Rocky Blyer begins in a couple of seconds, and we will see you at the end of the show. Rocky Blyer is a four-time champion of the National Football League, winning his trophies and Super Bowls with the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 1970s. And also, Rocky Blyer is a veteran of the Armed Forces of the United States Army and was awarded the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star uh, for his time in service in Vietnam. And we are pleased to be joined right now on this Independence Day by Rocky Blyer on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. And first of all, Rocky, thank you so very much for joining us. And how are you doing, uh, this afternoon we're doing fine thank you for having me um and it's a it's a pleasure on this uh wonderful fourth of july uh, to all your listeners out there i want to wish them a happy independence day as well um what goes through your mind on these days july 4th uh, memorial day a veterans day when a lot of people remember a lot of the people and men and women who uh sacrificed themselves to protect this country what, what goes through your mind on these uh, particular days well, I, you know, I think the, I think the most important thing is uh, one, you know, putting the Fourth of July in the right perspective, uh, and for what it really stands for, rather than having a parade and a picnic uh, as we celebrate our fireworks and so on. Um, I think that all, you know, the gathering of family, um, they they get together and uh, uh, in those groups is, uh, you know, somewhere mentioned along the way, you know, and uh, uh, or a reflection of times past 
and how we got to where we are in uh, this country of ours. And it was because of the um, wars that have been fought to those who had fought for their freedom um, and, uh, what this, uh, and, and what this country represents and, and stands for. And I think it's, and it's just in, in, in general, you know, that kind of a, that kind of an attitude, that kind of a feeling, uh, and not to be forgotten of uh, what this uh, day means to you know to all of us. Um, then we can enjoy our our picnics and our and our fireworks and our um, and our and our gatherings. But I think that uh, you know if uh, somebody just takes the time to think about either a current person in the military and or in the past uh, or. Uh, father or an uncle or grandfather that had served and um, and uh, maybe talk about that experience a little bit um, and what it means to them specifically because then it all comes home to uh, you know to to each and every one of us uh, the importance of this day uh, a lot of people are very familiar a lot of sports fans are very familiar uh, with your story of courageousness and overcoming uh, a lot of tribulations that you've had as uh, serving in war and we'll get into that um, uh, specifically uh, but take me through the time that you were in the National Football League you had been drafted uh, coming out in Notre Dame you're finishing your rookie year and then of course uh, the escalation of tension in uh, Vietnam and you were drafted uh, into uh, uh, that war. Uh, what were your thoughts about having your, I guess, professional career, which was just beginning and burgeoning, uh, being interrupted uh, by the Vietnam War? Well, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there wasn't much I could. Uh, there wasn't much I could do about it. Yeah, you know, exactly. it was, uh, the, <laughs> at the time. And so, you know, I, I, and it was always in the back of my mind, even during the period of time that I was serving. Um, you know, that I wanted to come back to play or hopefully that I'd be able to come back to play. Um, and that this was a, you know, this was an interruption, you know, so rather than dwelling on the, the, the situation and or the woes or the YVs and so on, is that you, you know, just you, you focus at the, at the task in hand that I was getting through basic and, and AIT advanced infantry training. You know, and then you were sent like thousands of Indian men over to Vietnam. So then you focus on um, what needed to be done during that period of time. And with the end result of returning home and um, hopefully coming back and, and uh, getting an opportunity to play. So it's sometimes like, you know, the... Uh, the, uh, the cards that the life deals you and and you have to you know it, it, you have to it, it just kind of deal with that uh, uh, as it, it you know as it comes rather than saying oh you know what could have been or should have been or would have been and you just move on you know with your life obviously that's after looking back at it all these yeah. many years you know and at uh, and at the moment of time it was somewhat. You know, you're just kind of like somewhat in shock, you know, all of a sudden, boom, you slipped through, boom, you're gone. Um, you know, what you had worked for is put on hold and, you know, so it, uh, um, it becomes, um, it becomes a focus of something else. Uh, once again, joined by Rocky Blyer on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast on this Independence Day. And you mentioned that uh, now in retrospect, you can think about the things in your future and just moving on from what was happening uh, in Vietnam and moving on and continuing your professional career uh, in football and post-football as well. And you mentioned the shock uh, initially 
in terms of everything that was happening while you were in Vietnam. I want to talk about your recovery. And a lot of people know uh, about you being wounded um, in uh, Vietnam. Uh, The recovery, first of all, even before the recovery, the doctors that did uh, tell you that uh, because of your injuries to your uh, legs and to your feet, that uh, walking would be uh, a chore in terms of being able to uh, regain full motion in walking, let alone playing uh, football again. What was your motivation then um, in terms of wanting to get back onto the football field? A lot of people might have accepted their fate from their doctors, but right. why were you uh, headstrong, well, I would say? Yeah, um, what, what, I think what, you know, I think the focus was, I mean, the focus was, as I had made mention earlier, you know, that this was just a disruption of my life at this, at, at, at that moment. And, and the true focus was to be able to come back and play. You know, so that kind of, you know, even when I was in the service, even when I was in Vietnam, you know, I would think, okay, if I ever got a, a, a rear echelon job, you know, got a, a field for whatever reason, it, you know, it was back at one of the base camps. Okay, now what would you do, or what could you, do, you know, you do to uh, to work out or lift weights, and you know, and so on. So that was always kind of my focus. Now, so when I came back, you know, it was still, it was still, you know, it was still that focus, which was a drive and a desire to be able to attain it. Now, what I thought, you know, even though, even though the doctor said, oh, you know, because the, the biggest damage I had was to my foot, um, and um, um, and so early on, and I didn't find this out until until later. Early on, I had a staph infection that was moving up my leg, and there was, you know, then there was thought of a possible amputee if it didn't, if they couldn't control it, or couldn't um, uh, stop it, and eventually it did, or they did, and got it controlled. But in the meantime, there, there was nothing they could do constructively, uh, and so they had to let all the let all the injuries heal until that scar, um, until that uh, staph infection, you know, was was taken care of. So they just let it heal. Then, um, then they had to go back, and so then they had to go back and and. I tried to get some cut out ligaments out of scar tissue, you know, to get movement. They had to regenerate nerve endings so I could move my toes. I couldn't get any of that, that feeling. So that's one that, you know, I mean, the prognosis was a, you might have a normal life. It's not as if you couldn't walk or so on, but don't expect, and that was the biggest thing, don't expect to be able to push off run, you know, to, to play professional football, whatever they thought that image was. But in my mind, in my mindset, it was this. Well, you know, I mean, anybody who's ever played, I mean, just played in the backyard, anybody who's been involved in sports of one nature, you know, if you've had your bumps and your bruises and your sprains and sometimes your tears or broken bones, and, you know, the lesson is, well, they heal eventually, you know, and most of the times you go back and participate in that sport of one level or another. And so it wasn't as if I was missing a limb. It wasn't as if, you know, there was a final no damaged, okay, had been there before, rehab, that was in my feature. Uh, time was also, you know, an important factor in, in healing. So you just, and also that just became a, a, an immediate focus to get over one hurdle, over another hurdle, over another hurdle, um, and, you know, and, and hopefully come back to 
to play when I when I got out of the service, not to play, but at least to get an opportunity and 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 and, um, and, and put yourself in a position to do it. So I had to start from the beginning, go back in rehab, you know, go back to the weight room, I limp through, you know, distance running, try to get myself back into shape um, because I'd lost forty some pounds um, throughout that period of time, and uh, so I had to put those. Put that weight, we came back pretty, pretty, pretty naturally, you know. <laughs> and so then, and then it was just, and, and so that be, so that became the focus. Sometimes we give up on ourselves, and sometimes we believe what other people say without really, you know, uh, taking the. And, and we believe because maybe we want to believe it. Maybe it doesn't become that much of a passion or a, a drive to be able to, you know, push yourself through that. And um, you know, so in, in this case, it, it was. And part of the reason, I think also just to, um, is that, you know, my identity was tied up in playing. I enjoyed playing. I enjoyed the recognition of having played, even though I played one year, um, but just to, you know, play on a professional level because that was, you know, I think in all of us, we'd like to be able to get there. I got there, then I you know, was taken away for a short period of time. I'd like to get back to, you know, that position. So that became a maybe self-serving, but it was a driving force. Uh, was your road to recovery before you rejoined the Steelers, but while you were beginning your rehab, was the road to recovery kind of a lonely road to recovery? Was there any people <laughs> that were motivating you or uh, before you joined the Steelers, or was it just mostly yourself right. just working out no. uh, before you joined the Steelers? Yeah, there was, no, there, I mean, so I was still in the military, you know, so, I mean, so, so I was still in the military, uh, before, uh, so before I got my release, um, and, you know, and I had a, had a, I had a regular day job <laughs> within the military at that time. Yeah. So, um, I, we were living, um, we were living off base, and, uh, and I was living with three other guys. You know, so a friend of mine, one of the, one of the guys, I, I was a medic over in Vietnam that I was living with, and he came back. He's a big farm boy from Iowa. Steve Eller was his name, Doc Eller, and um, uh, and Steve was—I mean, he was—he was—he was just Steve was big at the time. He was maybe two hundred eighty pounds. You know, he was soft. He was you know flabby, but. <laughs> uh, he would help. Me. He, he would, you know, he would. We'd run sprints together. I mean, I'd go, and so my day was began at five. I got up in the morning at five, and I'd go, you know, go and run distance. You know, I'd go start with a, you know, with a mile, and you know, try to get it. Go and limp through half of it, and come back, change, uh, then go to work, and then leave work at three or so. Go to the gym uh, on base, you know, and start lifting weights again, and then come home or eat on base and then come home, and then I'd get Steve and he'd time me in, in 40s. I had to start <laughs> working on 40 speed. Oh, you know, he'd beat me half the time. And then he would, then he, then he would, then he would dangle it in front of my face. Yeah, you know? how would, how would you <laughs> feel when he would beat you half the time in these races? <laughs> That's what, not well. You know, I, dang, I said, man, I didn't have speed to begin with, but I really lost some speed. And so it became a... So they were so they're there to support and and then Steve specifically was there to support and you know that so that you know that got me through and I got better and I got to a point where you know then it was tie and then, then I was beaten by a you know by a step and you know and then um, uh, eventually like you know I could beat him uh, most of the time but but 
they were there, and that was and, and that became important. And the second thing that came important. So when I came back, and so when I came back to the Steelers, you know, my my as I told you, you know, I was very focused on on what I wanted to do, and they gave me an opportunity. Now, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't dwell on that long enough, you know, because you know you need to have a door open. And so they gave me an opportunity. I went to training camp that first year. And it took its toll. I mean, training camp took its toll. I wasn't really ready to come back um, from an endurance point of view and and fought because injuries yeah, injuries just take time. And you know, now it was my last operation was like in February, and you know, now it's July, um, and it just you know wasn't enough time. And so eventually, you know, I started to limp through practice. And but I'd go through practice, and and I was then you know they held me all the way through until the final cut, and then they had to release me, uh, and so on, and 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 they did, and but they were they were good enough to put me on the injured reserve for whatever reason, whether it be guilt or or I don't know whether they saw anything, but I think they just wanted to take care of their players. Uh, and so I had another, uh, I had another operation. They, they said, maybe our doctors can take care of you. And I came back the following year, and, but, but I, but I hung around. So I went through rehab again and, you know, I was, I was kind of there and went to meetings and just, I was just kind of hanging around. Uh, and I came back the following year and I made the, the developmental squad as they call it today, the taxi squad back yeah. then. Um, and I got, you know, and so went to training camp, practice with the team, suited up for maybe the last three games of the, of the season. But in those two year period, in that two year period, as I say, they bought me an opportunity, but it's what you do with that opportunity. So I think visually they saw me change. I mean, they saw me when I first came back to now two years later, I was bigger, I was stronger, I was Faster, and, you know, worked on my worked on my conditioning. Did all those things. And I came back into training camp, and um, I think that always becomes a you know a, a deciding factor when you're trying to or have the opportunity to kind of be within uh, or hanging around uh, rather than out of sight, out of mind. Um, but I was constantly there, and they could see the physical changes that had taken place mm-hmm. over that period. So that was a that was a that maybe was a leg up in in 1972 when I got a chance to make the team played special teams primarily. But that's okay. Yeah. Uh, was there a moment or moments when either in a game or during practice or whenever that you said, okay? I am back to where I was uh, prior to my injuries. Was there a moment when you thought, okay, now I'm in my peak uh, prime performance uh, with my body and I'm ready to make an impact in the National Football League the way I would want to make an impact in the National Football League? Well, yeah, I think so. You know, by 1973, you know, I came, you know, so 1973, I mean, just so I came back to camp again, you know, I came back to camp again. And um, I probably had my best camp, you know, in 1973. Uh, I was I weighed 218 pounds. I bench pressed 465 pounds. I squatted 600 pounds, um, and I was a leading ground gainer during the exhibition season. You know, and so I was I was I felt physically, mentally, you know, prepared to play, whether they thought or not. But that was it. And it wasn't until 1974, the following year. 
um, when when I when I got a chance to actually play about the fourth fifth game of the season, played the second half against the uh, against the Houston Oilers um, because of guys getting banged up in injuries, but had a pretty good game. Started the following week, all this at fullback because Franco Harris had been hurt um, and uh, had a pretty good game that following week, and then get started halfback the week thereafter as Franco got healthy and moved back over to the fullback position. And so then thereafter, it was, but it was probably that Houston game, you know, that really maybe solidified maybe the Kansas City game thereafter um, that, uh, um, you know, maybe in their mind said, okay, fine, he's ready to come back. And, and I, you know, and I knew I could play. Now, uh, you and Franco Harris teamed up to be one of the best backfield duos the, the game has ever seen, helping the team to, uh, for uh, Super Bowl championships, among many other factors uh, on that uh, Pittsburgh Steelers team. You mentioned uh, a game with Houston, and you mentioned a few other games, uh, Kansas City as well. Just playing those games against Houston, against Kansas City, Cleveland, uh, the Oakland Raiders, um, could you somehow pick one of those teams as your biggest rival it just must have been a gas to play all of those games against all those great teams now of course it, it hurt obviously uh playing those teams uh but just talk about playing in i guess like the halcyon days of the nfl when people remember the rivalries when they were um at its peak well you know and and, and you're and you're, and you're right so if you think about the early i mean in the in the in the, in the, in the afc Conference, anyway. So think AFC, about yeah. the early games. Yeah, that's right. But you think about the AFC uh, or in, in those early games, and so in the early the latter part of the sixties and uh, in early part of the seventies, Oakland Raiders, you know, were the you know were the the renegade dominant you know team, big physical you know team that they uh, that they were, um, and so they they became the they became the team to uh, you know to beat. Um, and so eventually, you know, in 72, we had the Immaculate Reception against the Oakland Raiders. Um, and, uh, in, in 73, we beat them. 74, we had to go out there and beat them, uh, to go to the Super Bowl. And so the early part of those years were big rival, uh, was a big rivalry because all the playoff games usually, um, you know, ended up with us in Oakland before, before the Super Bowl. Um, then, then uh, the divisional rivalry. So Cleveland, obviously, going through the years, Cleveland Browns and Pittsburgh, you know, had a great rivalry, turnpike rivalry, as they uh, like to call it. And then, uh, in the latter part of the, 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 the 70s, so we had Cincinnati Bengals, uh, in the latter part of the 70s, Houston Oilers. So then all of a sudden, Houston, uh, came onto the, uh, stage probably midway through and they became and they took that place of the Oakland Raiders and so now it was us in Houston um, having to play and they had a big physical team offensively uh, you know uh, great quarterbacks and receivers and a dominant running game so that became and we played them twice and then we had to play them again in in, in the playoffs so it was um, so we knew what our task was you know to, to be able to to, to, to to be able to get there um, but, and it was great competition, uh, to do so. 
but there was an un- underlying belief system I think that we had developed from the early part of the seventies. You know, uh, uh, um, in, in in winning that we were the team that nobody could beat us. That you know, maybe it was a, a youthful macho kind of a, a warrior attitude, but you know, it it, it, it turned out to, to be the truth. And that I always thought, you know, in the latter part, Houston was having themselves in a situation that if they ever beat us, I thought if they had ever beat us uh, in, in, a, in, in, in a playoff game, that it would kill you by the door. They had the talent to be able to do it, you know, to be able to get there. But they just couldn't get over that last hurdle for whatever reason. Well, you guys. <laughs> right. Of course, and that's right. <laughs> you guys, for whatever right. reason, yeah, a couple of playoff games, the AFC title game. All right, so um, uh, once again, we are talking with Rocky Blyer, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers legend and a uh, veteran of the United States Army as well. Uh, the rise of the Pittsburgh Steelers with their four Super Bowl championships also led uh, to the rise in the popularity of the Pittsburgh Steelers fan base. Of course, the terrible towels they are uh, known to wave. Uh, That must have been a special attachment with you and the fans of Pittsburgh, hardworking town, and you're a Midwest, uh, from Wisconsin, you're a Midwestern uh, guy as well. It must have been just a special attachment between you and the fans of Pittsburgh as the the team just started to rise uh, and become one of the uh, best and most well-known teams in the country. Well, I think first of all, you know, your identity within. I think that your identity with the team, you know, coincides with the success of the team. Yes. Um, and so the team becomes, you know, so the team becomes successful, starts to turn things around. As I said, 1972, we get the first time ever in 40 years of history uh, that we get into the in, in, into the playoffs. And then we have that remarkable play, the, the immaculate reception that kind of turns a tide, and then and we're in the playoffs, okay, in '73. But also, from a social economic point of view, this city was going through transformation. This city had 40 years of, you know, losing teams. The image of Pittsburgh um, was still Mills. Um, suit dirty, you know, before anybody before anybody really recognized or knew what the city was all about. That was the image. It was the image I had, you know, of, of Pittsburgh before I came here. And so uh, now all of a sudden we didn't care what the image was that you had. We had uh, successful teams. We had Super Bowl teams. And so that kind of attachment became very important to the people in Pittsburgh because they could point, pound their chests, and say, hey, everything else might be falling apart, but <laughs> we have Super Bowl teams, you know. <laughs> we have winning teams, and we kick your butt, you know, whatever it might be. So, so then they, then, it, 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 and so at that time, that changed, so there became a very special rapport with those players, with those group of, you know, because that was part of somebody's youth, that was part of their success. They were there during that period of time rather than being a part of history. Um, and, and they experienced that change and that pride. And so out of it developed, you know, people that you liked, you know, people that were successful. So in my case, yeah, you know, I'm from the Midwest. I'm a blue-collar kid. I had to work hard, you know, to be able to get there. Um, and people could identify with it because this is a tough, hard-working city, um, working in the steel mills and, and so on. So, yeah, so b- because of that, you know, you just kind of 
you know, like everybody, but you might have your favorite, and I might have been the favorite of you know yeah. those people who, who who were attracted to them. Again, Rocky Blyer joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, and again, we thank you so very much for uh, joining us. Your post football career has been very successful in terms of business ventures, uh, uh, financial ventures that you've uh, gotten into, financial firms, and uh, being a motivational speaker as well. And it's very interesting because a lot of veterans have found it difficult to make the transition from military life uh, to civilian life. And also a lot of professional sports athletes have found the transition from being a professional sports player to the post-professional sports career uh, difficult as well. Um, if you, uh, How were you able to make both of those transitions on both of those fronts uh, fairly seamless when you see a lot of uh, athletes then and now have kind of a tougher transition as well as uh, military veterans as well make the transition from uh, post-career, from post-military life, from military life and post-football life and sports life from the sports life that they had? I I, I, I mean, that transition, there's a couple of things, which is from, you know, in our society, I don't care who you are, where you are, in our society, no one ever teaches you how to retire or accept retirement. And in the minds of people, you know, that becomes a very difficult chore. In the past, you know, retirement became of, was because of age requirements already set, you know, within a contract of a nature. Um, or in our society, by the time you're 65, you had to retire. You had to leave the mills or whatever it might be. Um, and, um, and, and how we viewed people of retirement age until you get to retirement age. So transitions are very difficult, you know, as well, transitions. So, one, from a professional sport, you know, I mean, I even get to, to <laughs> stay from house retirement. <laughs> I wish I had retired or could retire, you know. Retirement was just leaving one aspect and going to, you know, going to something else. But you're right. I mean, it becomes difficult for some people um, in that transition because they can't leave that identity um, from what you were to what you need to be or where you may go. Except for, and I think this is, is a part of that transitional success, is, is how you view the success that you had. So if you're playing the game of, of, of you know, football and then you're forced into retirement, how? because of unseen injuries that may take place and then your career is cut short and you didn't get to fulfill your expectations of what you want to get accomplished within that period of time. Or the coach feels that you're not good enough to make the team. So now you've got rejection on top of separation uh, and that becomes difficult to deal with. Um, and so in my case, and I have to tell you this, in my case, you know, I, 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 was, I was lucky to be at the right, this right time with this team, you know, so I got to fulfill my, my dreams, I guess, is what it is. I got to play on championship teams. I got recognized for one's contribution during that period of time. And so when the time came to retire, you know, and you kind of, sometimes it needs to be pointed out to you, you know, but when you accept that period of time that this is going to be your last year, um, to be able to step away, 
is that you go, okay, fine. You know, one of my, in my case, I go, in. I got a chance to play 12 years. That's pretty good. Nice round number. Secondly, I played in four Super Bowl teams. Okay, fine. Oh, uh, why am I going to play longer? You know, um, I'm older, 35. Uh, you know, in this game, that's a, becomes an older age at, 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 certain, at certain levels, and the average life is three and a half years. So we go, I'm very lucky, you know, to be able to do that. And, um, and so I guess I, 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 I and, and, and anyway, my first job, unbeknownst to me, because I would not plan it, it just happened, was I got a chance to work in a local television station here. And, 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 and it made the transition, and, and it made the transition much easier. Well, I'm well, I was still attached to the game, you know, but now it's just reporting it. I still went up to training camp, but I got to go home every night um, after I did my interviews. Um, it was a new challenge. I got my ego stroked because I was on television, you know, and I think that's important as we make transitions. Uh, and I and I found a new challenge because I was not very good. <laughs> <laughs> have to get better. So I think all those things help make that transition. If you lose that, you know, and it takes longer, well, that's when you have a tendency, you know, for failure or a tendency to lose money, or you know, or uh, when you're trying to capture or or maintain what had been where you had been before. And I, and I don't care what it is. The military has the same thing. All of a sudden, you're a military guy, you know, and you put, you know, four, six, eight, a career in, and now no longer you're a, you're no longer a military guy, and you don't do it military ways, and you can't have the same expectation because now you're in civilian force, and that expectation is much different, you know, than what had happened. Getting things done sometimes take longer. Your your presence and or your command, you know, doesn't doesn't have a preference. Um, and people aren't going to jump, you know, when you say to do it because of your rank and or position. Well, those are tough, you know, those are tough situations to, you know, to, to, to be able to, to, to deal with. And um, so, but I, you know, I just happened to, you know, have gone through that period that gave me a new challenge. And so I spent four years in the, in the, uh, in the media business, you know, which was plenty of time until I finally realized that, you know, this is not what I wanted to do, you know, with the rest of my life. I would be remiss uh, without asking you, and this is going to be our final question. Uh, Chuck Knoll, uh, last month, uh, passed away. Your coach uh, with the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, head coach with the Pittsburgh Steelers, passed right. away uh, at the age of 82 last month. Um, uh, Chuck Knoll and what he meant to you, his legacy, uh, in your words, uh, just uh, to speak to the man uh, that Chuck Knoll uh, is and was. You know, I, I, I would be, be a fair statement that Chuck touched each and every one of his players somehow, and he made a difference in their lives. You know, and Chuck was not a, 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 a player's coach. He was not a, you know, he was not the, you know, the dear old coach, um, you know, in fond remembrance. But Chuck was a person that uh, affected our lives during that period of time changed our lives during that period of time. Part of the success, part of lessons learned, part of preparation, you know, to be able to get um, where he, to get that team to where it was. You respected Chuck because of his knowledge. 
he respected Chuck because of his knowledge about a lot of things. He was a very smart man because because of that. You know, football was not a was not the major focal focal point of his life. The game was important to him, um, but it was not his life. The period of time and practice was important, but it was not a, his life. And I think that's one of the things that he had, you know, um, uh, at least instilled into his players is that, you know, there is life. You have a family. You know, there is more that is going on than this world of, of football. And his expectations were this. It was that, okay, fine. When you're here, you do what needs to be done. Uh, and in the off season, you know what needs to be done. That's part of your responsibility, you know. But you don't live the game twenty four hours. You don't live it seven days a week. You know, you need to have a break. You need to have time. Um, and and um, because otherwise, you you're, you're you're not any good to us, you know. And you just get you know overtired or overburdened because of of, of, of this game. So I thought those were, you know, just kind of life lessons that, um, you know, he would, uh, um, he would impart, you know, his whole concept. He never blamed anybody. He never blamed any person in front of the media. You know, if he had a discussion, it would be on the side, uh, and, and it would be private, um, if he needed to have that with you. Um, but he had set his expectations very, very high. And if you didn't meet those expectations and your responsibilities, there wasn't any one person that was big enough for this team to um, that he would not get rid of, you know. And it's not that he had to make the decision. He said sometimes, most times in life, you know, people if you give them enough rope or enough time, they 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 will do the deed themselves. You know, they will make it easy for um, you to release them and or cut them. Um, and so, um, and that has always been true. Um, as I've looked on on, um, on situations and or people that have uh, had their careers cut short. Rocky Blyer, four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and recipient of the Purple Heart and Bronze Star. Rocky, uh, we can't thank you enough uh, for joining us uh, here today on this Independence Day and sharing uh, your stories of uh, perseverance and uh, celebrating uh, a man's life from Chuck Knoll and celebrating the time that you had uh, being with one of the best teams uh, in NFL history with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Rocky, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we thank you so very much uh, for joining us and definitely enjoy uh, the rest of your Fourth of July. Will do, and thank you, and thank you for the time. And um, I hope that everybody who's listening have a great Fourth of July. Thanks very much. The 2014 FIFA World Cup gets underway once again on this Independence Day. It's the quarterfinal round that gets started today. And one of the teams that play today has been one of the best teams in the FIFA World Cup so far, that being Colombia. Four games, four wins, and they've captured the imagination of so many soccer fans worldwide, not just with their play, but uh, with their dancing skills as well um, after goals and a couple of breakout players that a lot of people are now uh, getting to know, including James Rodriguez, who plays for AS Monaco. And 
In terms of capturing the imagination, a lot of Colombians and Colombian Americans have really taken to this Colombian national team. And one of the people that has been captured by the Colombian national team in terms of the imagination is one person that joins us now on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. She is Trish Leon Guerrero. She is the managing director for Latino Engagement and Partnership at Teach for America. And we thank you so much for joining us on the show. And first of all, how are you doing this morning on this Independence Day? Well, hello. Thank you for having me. I am like a child on Christmas Day. Woke up so early with the game and counting down to the hours. I'm excited. I'm not going to lie, a little tired because I wanted to sleep in, but I'm good. <laughs> excitement and energy is, is just all like I'm ready for the game. It's a, it's a huge day for us. Now, I do want to ask you because you're so excited for the game. It's Brazil <laughs> and Colombia. I'm um, in the quarterfinal round. Colombia plays, plays the host nation, uh, Brazil. Uh, with Colombia doing so very well and with your Colombian heritage, outside of the winning itself, what has been the best part of watching this World Cup for you? Oh, my goodness. Where do I start? Uh, so many good parts. I think, I just think it's the community in which it's created, just even in just game watching. I think about last weekend where I got separated from my friends, and we were, there's a couple of places in downtown D.C. where a lot of the Colombian community is coming out and literally taking over restaurants and bars just to watch the game together. And I think it's that. I, I remember just standing alone because I got separated from my friends, and a handful of Colombianas were just like, are you alone? You're not alone. You're with the community. And it's just like this beautiful collective spirit that, that it's just like you can feel that you're, you're, you're just, you're a part of. And I think it's so much more than the game, and it means so much more just for the country. And, you know, for someone, I will open the fact that I've actually have not had the, like, the opportunity to get held to my motherland but to just be in, in a place that is just so welcoming and embracing. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, um, how you identify, but just, like, knowing that you're there to support um, this beautiful thing that's happening, is just, that's my favorite part. I love watching the game, and watching James Rodgers going to score is always, like, the number one <laughs> moment. But it, honestly, for me, it's just, like, I love the community. Uh, I, I love the, the people from our country. It's just it's just, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. Now, uh, before this World Cup, uh, were you excited about watching Colombia? Essentially, what I'm asking is, uh, were you a soccer fan uh, before this, or yeah. has it been? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. I, I was thinking out loud. Um, <laughs> to be honest, like, I, there's a couple of things. Like, I love soccer. I played soccer for seven years growing up, so I think that, that there's, like, the inner... Uh, soccer fan. Uh, can I tell you all the plays and all the positions, et cetera? Like, no, I don't got that vocabulary. Um, was I excited for the World Cup? I saw Columbia once they made it. Like, I was like, oh, I got to watch this. I will be real. Like, I have not watched the World Cup in a while. Uh, but what piqued my interest was knowing that Columbia was playing and knowing that I had to watch it. And as I watched it, and it's just, it's, it's doing a lot of good for me. Um, so, I'll own it. Like, I was like, great, the World Cup. And then I saw that Columbia was playing, and that's actually what got me really rallied up and pumped to watch the games. Um, and then I went to watch it with a lot of my Colombian family out here. Uh, and by that, I'm using it in a general sense. <laughs> my new Colombian family. Uh, it just, it, every, as every game comes along, uh, my, my excitement and energy increases. 
Now, talk to me a little bit more about your Colombian heritage. Uh, what member or members of your family are Colombian? Yeah, uh, my mother uh, was born in Bogota, Colombia, and so it's my mother's side that uh, all comes from Colombia, and so that's the and it's an identity that I have strongly begun to embrace, especially over the last decade. And so, as you get older, you start reflecting on like who you are and why you are the way you are in terms of just, like, what you care about. And I'm really seeing more and more that it's, it's the Colombian uh, part of me and my identity that I've just strongly embraced. And so it's my mother and, and her eight brothers and sisters. <laughs> wow. That's a family. Mm-hmm. That's a family. <laughs> that, that is a unit. <laughs> and have you been able to gauge the interest uh, of Colombian soccer and kind of what it's doing to the community, whether with it being your immediate family or uh, family that's in Colombia with the way that they've been winning and how that's been buoying um, and boosting the morale uh, for either your family or your family's friends uh, that are in Colombia? Yeah, if I think I think I heard your question right, so I'm just going to answer as I heard it, and then you tell me. <laughs> that was a that was a mouthful. I know, I know. Just talk about kind of the uh, camaraderie that's been built uh, oh, with yeah. your family, yeah, yeah. Um, and of maybe course. your family in Colombia, if not your family in the states, because of Colombia doing so well. Yeah. So um, thank you for <laughs> that. That was my fault. My uh, apologies. No, no, no. You're good. Um, it's great because it's a. I have a, a group me text message, uh, so like a an app that allows like you to add a lot of group members. And it, so I have a family one with all my Colombia family members. Every time there's a game, like we all post and we'll say like Viva Colombia. Uh, we'll like send pictures of it, like us wearing our jerseys, and so it's a fun like big fan. I actually. Uh, uh, mailed out jerseys to my brother and his son yesterday. I tried overnighting it. I didn't take him so fast that he was holiday today. I'm like, I hope they wear the Stonewalk jersey tomorrow. Hopefully, <laughs> can get it. Uh, but it, it's just, yeah, like they're, even my mom, I'm like, well, let's watch the game. Like, you know, uh, so that, that's, awesome. like, you know, within my family, it's, it's special. Uh, and then, like, you know, with my, my work family and even uh, my team members, I'm actually invited some of my team members based in D.C. to come watch the game with me. They send me emails. They're like, vamos Colombia. Uh, so it's it just it's a beautiful thing. Um, I've probably said that five times, but I it, it is. It, it feels, it's like the spirit of collectiveness that is just fantastic. I mean, I think about two weeks ago, um, who are we playing? I, I'm, like, drawing a blank right now. Uh, but I was out in Boston for work, and I was working with one of my colleagues, and she's also, she also identifies um, as Colombian, and, like, we both literally made sure to go get one so we could watch the game together. She was wearing her jersey. I was I was rocking all my Colombian bracelets, and we're here in Boston. Uh, not that many Colombians are out there or at the place that we were, and we were just, like, enjoying it. So it, it's, it's, yeah, it, it, it's bringing a lot of people together, um, and yeah, I, I think I, camaraderie is just such a great word to describe what's happening. Once again, we are joined by Trish Leon Guerrero. She's the managing director for Latino Engagement and Partnership at the nonprofit organization Teach for America. And I definitely want to transition uh, to the job that you have um, at Teach for America. And for those that uh, don't know about Teach for America, it's a nonprofit uh, organization which helps to uh, close the education gap uh, for students from uh, low-income communities and families compared 
uh, to their peers. And the engine that really drives uh, Teach for America uh, is and are people like yourself, just young, energetic leaders who uh, end up teaching in those communities for at least a couple of years and then still stay involved uh, uh, in terms of being in the lives of those uh, students and those people. Uh, how did you get started uh, with Teach for America? Uh, yeah, so I got started about 10 years ago, actually, to the date. Uh, I'm celebrating my 10 years of service next week. Um, but I got started at seeing, I grew up first generation. I was the first in my immediate family to go to college um, as a result of scholarships like the Gates Millennium Scholarship and the Hispanic Scholarship Fund. I then was afforded the opportunity to attend college since I was able to have financial support from these phenomenal scholarships. And education has always just been, like, something I've been aware of. Um, growing up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, and in the community that I grew up there, like, I, I always felt like I, I was the lucky one, the one who was able to, like, get out, if you will. Um, and so I think there's, you know, education was forefront for me, going to Syracuse University, uh, learning uh, and studying in public policy and actually realizing it wasn't just me uh, in terms of, like, having to struggle or trying to have to, you know, what I call is the hustle to figure out how am I going to get a higher education when we don't have the money to do it. My family uh, comes from humble means and beginnings. And so, uh, you know, I had a professor, Professor Copeland, uh, who always talked about doing good, and he was a champion of Teach America and still is. And you know, he made us read a book about uh, by Jonathan Kozel uh, around savage inequalities, and this book was just like opened my eyes to just such like the reality of education just in the space. Because um, you tend to think about like third world countries, et cetera, but just to think about the inequity in our country here. Uh, so that was something that, as I continued like learning more, I think that was my sophomore year, and I uh, heard about Teach for America, and as I read about the mission and I read about the work, I just thought, yes, you know. That the, uh, the phrase you're also much is given, much is expected, is something I embrace as well. And thinking that I was very fortunate, people invested in me, people believed in my potential. Uh, so, what better way to, to do that to others and have a greater impact? I, I, that's what drives me is knowing to have a positive impact in communities that I care about. And Teach for America was was a vehicle that allowed me to do just that. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Uh, applied, and I waited till senior year to apply. Um, I wanted to apply earlier, but, you know, you have to wait to be eligible to apply, and uh, got accepted, and then joined our core, we call our uh, cohorts cores, uh, the Las Vegas Valley Charter Course. It was a new region in 2004. It's hot second grade. Uh, talk about some of the statistics or pertinent either numbers or information in terms of uh, Latinos and education. It's something that you have really focused on um, since you're now uh, involved mostly in the Latino engagement uh, part for Teach for America. So what are some of the pertinent statistics? Or maybe I should ask, um, what were the numbers like when you first started for Latinos um, and education back in 2004, some of the important numbers and how they pos- and how they might have changed over the decades since you have been uh, sure. involved? Yeah. Um, you know, when I think about 10 years ago, uh, I'm going to scratch my memory. I'll, I'll speak from my experience. Uh, so when I became a teacher, uh, I something I also knew um, for me was I, I wanted to teach in a community that I could relate with. And that, for me, that is the Latino community. And so I, you know, 
first of all, our site, they didn't realize that, you know, like, out of all the communities, like Las Vegas, I preference it, et cetera. Um, and so I, I'll talk to my experience there. Yeah. Uh, and it, it took me a couple of years. I think when you're, like, 22, you, you're not uh, aware of certain dynamics and, and structures and systems. Well, at least I wasn't. Um, but after teaching there for three years, and even the, the story I always share to this day, it, it would actually drive the work that I do. is the story of Hav or Javier. Um, and he, as young as eight years old, I taught second grade. I'll never forget his comment when he first walked into my classroom around, Miss Young Guerrero, you're my first brown teacher. Back then, I thought that was that was cute, and I was like, oh, thanks. Like, I, I didn't know how to make sense of it. But then when you get into the heart of it, and you start looking around, and then you actually ask yourself, like, wait, did I have any teachers that looked like me? Like, what was my own experience? And when I personally couldn't come up with that answer, and then I reflect, like, how different would my experience have been had I had a teacher, not necessarily who looked like me, but actually it's more important around, like, the cultural understanding of, like, the challenges I was facing coming from a community. I mean, I went to a high school that was predominantly white, uh, and, and I was, like, 2% minority. And so when you start thinking about that, you're like, huh. And, and, and when I go back to when I was in the classroom, I started looking around to even just like my fellow teachers. And when we are serving a school district or even my school where 97% of the students that attend identify as Latino, and then you look at the staff, which at the time was about 70 staff members, I was one of two Latino teachers at my school. And that, that just sat with me. And I was thinking, wow. And then I just started becoming more aware of certain things and certain experiences where I would have parents from other classrooms come up to me and ask and speak to me in Spanish and my Spanish was a little rusty, but there's like this unspoken like cultural understanding when you're like, oh, I, I want to go talk. She might understand where I'm coming from. And, and I think it's grounded in that just like cultural competency and like understanding around like, okay. And, and, and it's that experience and fast forward to now where you ask the question about statistics and I think, Nationally, I think it's around, I want to say, and, and don't quote me on this, I know the, the, I'm focusing a lot with some of my team members around our, our work on increasing more Latino men. So I know that statistic, but when you think nationally in education, like around 2% of all educators identify as Latino men. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think about just like what we see happening across our country and what it means to have like role models and more, and more teachers and leaders that just can truly have that shared understanding. Um, and, and then I also think about the population and Latinos are the fastest growing community nationwide. And I think it's about out of every public school student out there, one in four identify as Latino. Mm. And when I think about what type of leaders and representation are we sending specifically into our schools uh, that share that identity, because I truly believe in additional impact through cultural understanding. Uh, are you active in the recruitment of either of more Latino teachers, maybe specifically men, uh, to uh, uh, to teach for America? Yes, that is what I live and breathe for. Um, it's what I do on the daily. Uh, I've spent the last seven years specifically with that focus to increase more Latinos uh, to join our our classrooms uh, through Teach for America. Um, we and so I whether it's launching uh, recruitment and engagement at Hispanic Serving Institutes in Texas, which I did a handful of years ago to 
uh, partnering with phenomenal organizations like the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, Hispanic Heritage Foundation, uh, because I also realized, like, we can't do it alone, and nor should we. Um, and so partnering up with national organizations to, to really, like, because at the end of the day, a lot of us have the same goal and mission in mind um, around just increasing opportunity for communities uh, and, and the way in which I'm approaching it through education. And so, yeah, I, I, I am very active. I run an entire team. Um, I have the privilege of running and leading an entire team focused on uh, Latino partnerships, engagements, and initiatives. So working with Latino Greek organizations, working with partners, um, creating Latino leadership summits to convene college Latinos to think about education and think about the role that they must take on uh, in order to move our community forward. Once again, Trish Leon Guerrero, the Managing Director for Latino Engagement and Partnership for Teach for America, joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk uh, podcast. You mentioned your time in Texas and what you do in uh, Washington, D.C., so I'm guessing that this job has seen you uh, travel the country. Um, so just tell me some of the places that you have uh, been to, whether nationally or, I guess, internationally, um, in terms of spreading the word on the importance of education and the importance of uh, Latino role models in education? Yeah, I, I think the better question is where haven't I been? <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, all right. Okay, so instead of uh, where in the world is Carmen San Diego, where in the world has Trish Leon Guerrero been? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, well, I guess how many places have you been uh, in I terms of uh, spreading the word? Yeah, so our work, because Teach for America is, is, is domestic, so all my travels have been within... The U.S. And so, I mean, I was just in Seattle last week, the week before I was in Boston. The week before that, I was in Phoenix. Um, I'm heading out back to Vegas in a couple of weeks for our 10-year anniversary uh, of Teach for America in that city. And so, any and everywhere a city-state will have me or us um, is where I will be. Uh, I think about just, you know, where there are strong... Uh, communities of Latinos, um, and by strong, I mean just like high in number, um, to just really connect and do and, and share out whether we're doing events in the cities or where we're recruiting on campuses. Uh, at the end of the day, it's just like this is such an important issue, just as much as like immigration is so with education. Um, and so I, I just, I mean, I, I'm not giving you a direct answer because I'm like, I've been everywhere. <laughs> um, from Texas to all, all and up and down the East Coast. I think about the summits we've had from like Miami to Chicago, San Antonio, Los Angeles, um, Boston, New York. It's just, it's, it, it, it's important for like every community. And so wherever they will have me and our work, mm. I will be there. And amidst all of this travel and amidst all of this work, you still manage to keep a very uh, fit lifestyle in terms of being active <laughs> and running. Okay, you have to tell me that. This is a sports show as well. Um, I think you told me you were teaching a Zumba class or taught a Zumba class last night. Um, so uh, just tell me about how you, with all of this, still keep fit and keep active and, and uh, manage to fit all of this in while you're jet-setting across the country. <laughs> I, I am grateful that my family always um, encouraged sports. Growing up, I played soccer to basketball to um, you name it, cross country. And so, yes, running and I, we had a long history and then had knee surgery and it made me rethink a couple of things. But I do teach Zumba. I'm a Zumba instructor out here in D.C. 
Um, and I, I love dancing. I mean, that's also probably why I love our Colombian football team. <laughs> but on our team, it's going to throw out a little salsa after the game. Like, that's just beautiful, beautiful. Um, so I, I'm a dancer at heart. Um, and so I do teach. I think, like, to be able to do the work at my best, I have to be at my best. Um, and, and maintaining and renewing my energy uh, through fitness and sports is uh, how I do it. Um, I could do it a little bit better, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I do try and, um, and, and it's, it's, it, it keeps, it's, it's my happy thing. It's what fuels me. It's, it, it gives, it gives me that good juju <laughs> that Work, you want. Working um, out and yeah. keeping fit gives you that good juju. I love it. Mm-hmm. That, that might be the best way to, uh, put it to someone that wants to start working out and feel better about, uh, their health. It gives you good juju. Uh, might be the best way to uh, explain it. Uh, I do have to leave you with this, uh, being that the beginning of this conversation uh, centered on uh, the Colombian uh, football team. Um, I got to ask for a prediction because obviously it's your uh, heritage and Colombia is your country of heritage and you've been so um, excited about the team's uh, success, but they are playing the team that most people uh, regard as the best uh, soccer-playing team, soccer-playing nation uh, in the world in Brazil. It's in Brazil. Do you think uh, Colombia... Well, I shouldn't even ask, do you think? I know you think that Colombia can win. Do you think they will win uh, today? I... That's a great question. I You don't have to break this down in terms of, you know, athletes <laughs> and formations. Just give me what your heart says, what's gonna happen today in your heart. My heart says that they're gonna fight and they're gonna fight excuse me, but they're gonna fight like hell. Um and because they I, I think it's gonna be a close game. I know we're playing a phenomenal team as well. Um, but they're gonna they want it. They're hungry for it and, mm-hmm. and what is great is that if you can tell that it's the entire team, the entire country wants it. Um, and I'm not saying that that's not true for Brazil. And so my heart says they're going to win. I think realistically, I mean, I'll be real. I don't know the stats and I can't give you the predictions. Um, I would still bet on Colombia today. Mm-hmm. But I think whatever happens, it's still going to be such a good. I'm so proud. I'm just so proud for the country uh, to get to, for our, my country to be this, uh, to get to this level and to this bar where nobody expected it. I'm all about the, the underdogs and the Cinderella story. Um, and so I, I just think it's amazing what happens when, when there's the opportunity. Mm. Um, nobody expected James Rodriguez to shine the way he shined. And when you think about his own personal story, uh, growing up incredibly poor and not even having enough money to essentially stay longer than one minute on a phone call with his family when he was traveling, uh, but not losing his grit and where his heart is. I just, it's a phenomenon. It's the same with education. You get someone an opportunity and see what happens when you believe in the potential. So I'm going to say yes, because that's, that's where my heart is saying, and we'll see. So Columbia. Yeah. Uh, Trish Leon Guerrero, the Managing Director for Latino Engagement and Partnership. It has been a pleasure uh, talking with you uh, this morning as Colombia and Brazil will play at 4 o'clock today in the quarterfinal round of the 2014 FIFA World Cup. Trish, again, it has been a pleasure. And um, are you going to have your Colombia jersey as you go out and watch the game in D.C.? Oh, jersey, flag, bracelets. <laughs> I laid out the outfit last night. <laughs> last night? Oh, you prepared. <laughs> I'm prepared. 
I am prepared. <laughs> oh, wow. Trish, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We will talk with you down the road. And again, we um, are very appreciative of the work that you do uh, in terms of education for the Latino community. It's something that uh, we at A Lot of Sports Talk take very seriously as well. So we do appreciate your work and we do appreciate the time uh, that you took to take out this morning to uh, talk with us. So definitely uh, we will uh, keep in touch down the road. And thank you so very much for your time. Thank you so much for reaching out. This has been a true pleasure. Viva Colombia. James Rodriguez is one of the stars of the 2014 FIFA World Cup, and we thank a couple of stars for joining us on this podcast number seven on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, Trish Leon Guerrero, as well as former Pittsburgh Steelers Super Bowl champion Rocky Blyer. So that's our show for this week. Next week's show will take place exclusively in Mount Pleasant, Texas, where the fourth and one football camp is taking place next week. Fourth and One is a football camp that is near and dear to my heart. I have personally been involved in the camp since its inception in 2010. And what makes the camp so special is it is a non-for-profit organization. It's a free football camp for high school students coming from mostly underrepresented groups. And it is the only camp in North America to blend football training with ACT, SAT classes, as well as life skills classes as well. So it is one of the most special camps out there for high school students, let alone high school athletes. So we will be there next week, and our podcast exclusively will deal with 4th and 1. It's a camp that a few NFL players and people involved with the National Football League have helped out and been able to visit over the past few years, including Derek Johnson of the Kansas City Chiefs and Paul Pajlozny of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Gus Bradley, the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars, also stopped by at the Jacksonville camp uh, this year to to talk with the student athletes. There are three camps uh, for fourth and one. One is in Mount Pleasant, Texas, where we will be where the camp started. There are two other camps as the camp is expanded to East Lansing, Michigan, and to Jacksonville, Florida. So next week's podcast will exclusively be about fourth and one. So until then, you guys have a great fourth of July. Hope you are with family and friends and enjoying the day and keeping things in perspective on this fourth of July. Thank you very much, and we will see you next week. Take care. Bye bye.